Well, again, let me uh, welcome visitors here uh, on behalf of the whole church family. It's wonderful to see you, and we're very, very pleased uh, to have you uh, with us. And you won't know that we've been looking through the book of Ephesians um, over these last few weeks. We started back in January, had a little break. We're now uh, in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 1, actually, again. But uh, you might just like to turn in your Bibles uh, so you can see uh, where I'm going and what I'm saying and why I'm saying it. It's page 1173, if you have a church Bible, page one. Uh, 7.3, and this is the point at which we believe that God uh, speaks to us through the Bible, and uh, so that's why we turn to it each week. Ephesians chapter 4. We've had uh, blazing sunshine in April, seems a long time ago now, doesn't it? The wettest month on record in June, uh, floods in Sheffield, Doncaster and Hull, and so here in Yorkshire we haven't needed the worldwide sequence of live earth concerts to raise awareness of the problems of climate change. We're all too aware of that. And while climate change and global warming need not be linked, these um, seasonal fluctuations do add fuel to the fire of the doom mongers who predict a cataclysmic end to the planet. Now as Christians we've got lots to say about, or ought to have lots to say, about uh, climate change and global warming and all those sorts of issues and how we ought to look after the planet. I'm not going to talk about all those things Uh, today, but we should think about them. However, I do want to reassure you today as we turn uh, to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 2, this wonderfully reassuring verse, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10. Did I say say verse 2? I mean verse 10. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10, page 1173. It is a remarkable verse. See there it says, at the end of time, when the times will have reached their fulfilment, God's plan is to, do you see it there, chapter 1 verse 10, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Here, we see in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10, is part of the eternal plan of Almighty God. You see, the end of the world is never out of control. Nature will not decide when the world ends and neither will mankind. Ultimately, our planet is not at the mercy of our sun continuing to burn brightly or the effects of global warming or a rogue state starting a nuclear holocaust. Almighty God is in control of this world and this creation uh, will only come to an end when he decides. And when he does finally decide to wrap up history as we know it, What a great day that will be. Do you see chapter 1 verse 10? It will usher in a day of complete harmony and unity in the universe when everything will come under together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thought. Everything united under Jesus. But of course as you look around the world today, uh, verse 10 appears to belong to, in the realm of make-believe along with Cinderella and Alice in Wonderland, which were the two stories that I read to my children just last night. This just seems to fit with that, doesn't it? Put it back on the shelf uh, with the books that tell fairy stories. You see, looking at the state of the world today, it seems quite impossible, impossible, that everything in the universe will be brought together under the rule of Jesus Christ. What is chapter 1, verse 10 about? What are you thinking when you believe that? Just look at last week's news headlines. Dominated by people blowing each other up, or at least attempted to, or or, or countries fighting each other, or of nations crippled by civil war. Looking at the world stage, it does seem impossible to believe that one day everything will be brought together under the headship of Christ. We might long for it, but it looks impossible. And never mind on the world stage, just this week, a friend 
uh, was telling me how his own family can't even get on together. They have disagreements over money and arguments over, well, it seems just about everything and often over the most insignificant things. Families can't even get on together. How can we believe that the whole universe will ever be united under the rule of Jesus Christ? Well, that is where the church fits in and some of you might now just want to start laughing. You know, through the church, what on earth has the church got to do with that great plan of God? Well, it is through the church now that God has begun to bring everything together under Christ through the glorious gospel that we've been singing about, that we've seen in the baptism, that we've been praying about. You see, the church is not an insignificant organisation. The church is not just another one of many charities that are trying their best to make the world a better place. That is not it at all. Amazingly, the church is at the very heart and centre of God's plan for his universe. To look at the church is to look at the body of people God has already brought together under Christ. So to look at the church is to see how God is already uniting people under Christ. And so to look at the church is to have confidence that God will one day bring everything together under Christ. And that is why the way we treat each other is so significant. For if the world is going to see and believe this amazing verse in chapter 1 verse 10, they ought to see that it is already happening. And therefore if we are not treating each other as we should, it will deny this amazing truth. I went to Wimbledon on Monday. I love tennis. I went to Wimbledon uh, not to watch any Brits because they were virtually all out by then. Although Jamie Murray, is, he's still there, isn't he? Let's see how he does this afternoon. But I went to Wimbledon on Monday to watch the rain falling in London rather than in Sheffield. Uh, I, I did manage to see some tennis, three and a half hours of a pulsating match between Rafael Nadal and Robin Soderling. And if any of you are interested in tennis, you're bound to have seen something of that match because it lasted for five days. And as I saw it, I was inspired. I really was. I began to dream a little dream that I know I shouldn't dream because parents shouldn't wish this upon their children. But I had this dream that in the year 2018, my little girls, Susanna and Bethan, the Williams sisters... You know where I'm going with this. That they, the Williams sisters, would win the Wimbledon's doubles title. You mark my words. It is the 8th of July, 2007. 2018, you watch it. Those words will look pretty empty if the girls can't even hit a ball with a tennis racket when they are 12 or 13. But if they become under-16 champions of Yorkshire when they are only 12, and if they played junior Wimbledon and won the doubles title at the age of 15 of junior Wimbledon, then you might begin to believe that my promise could come true, that they will one day become Wimbledon champions. Now, it seems a big ask, and you think it's impossible, and it probably is, but... Here is another promise. Almighty God has promised to bring everything, everything in the universe together under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we are to see that promise being worked out as we look at the church, he says, where God has already begun to bring people together under the Lordship of Christ. But Christian friends, that promise looks very empty if the people God has brought together under Christ now are not living together in unity. 
This is why it's actually such a travesty when we are at each other's throats. When we fail to live and treat each other properly as Christians with kindness and dignity, when we're not patient and forbearing with one another, when we fail to live as we should, it denies the power of the gospel. And it says that God's promise in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10 is empty. Now, do you see, our unity matters because God's reputation is at stake. If we are not united, his glory is at, 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 at an issue. Now, we know that, actually. We know that when the local church is not what it should be, people often say to us, and you call yourselves Christians. And indeed, they should say that, shouldn't they? They know it instinctively, what we should be like. Disunity dishonours God's name among unbelievers and as we were thinking last week, it dishonours God's name in the heavenly realms as the rulers and authorities in the unseen world look at us. If they fail to see the power of the gospel at work, they will slander God's name rather than glorify him. Living together in unity then is no small thing. And that's why Ephesians chapter 4 is an appeal for unity as we come to our chapter this morning. Ephesians chapter 4, look at verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We'll see it again in verse 13. Until we all reach unity in the faith. Now before we look at those two things, uh, unity uh, of the Spirit and unity in the faith, verse 3 and verse 13, please note Paul will not drive a wedge between the Spirit and the Word because Verse 13, unity in the faith, that is the revealed truth of God. The Spirit, verse 3, the Word, verse 13, go together. And it's very important we grasp that as we go through this passage. In fact, let me just do a bit of an aside on this, just to show you. Uh, Keep your uh, finger in Ephesians 3 and flip back with me to John 4, uh, page 1067. Because it seems this is so misunderstood in the wider church these days. And we hear so many things that do drive a wedge between word and spirit that we need to see perhaps that Jesus never does that. Turn to page 1067, John 4 and verse 24. See what Jesus says? God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. Spirit and truth together. Spirit and the word. Now if that's not clear to you then flip over another couple of pages to John chapter 6. Verse 63, and you'll see it even more clearly from the lips of Jesus. John chapter 6, verse 63. It's a great verse to to learn over this issue. The spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Do you see that? The spirit gives life, the words I have spoken are spirit and life. See, Jesus doesn't drive a wedge between the Holy Spirit and the word of God. Please don't put the preaching of the word over against the work of the spirit. As the word of God is preached faithfully, the spirit of God works. Now I think that's very important as we come back to Ephesians chapter 4 and you'll see why as this chapter unfolds. And particularly over the issue of unity. We will see that you cannot have unity in the church without spirit and word together bringing unity. First then, the unity of the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Verse 3 again. Make every effort to keep the unity 
of the Spirit. Now, I wouldn't be at all surprised if many of you instinctively have experiences. If you're a Christian, I'm almost certain that you will already know this unity of the Spirit. I can remember a most remarkable experience. It was remarkable because it was the first time I experienced it, shortly after I became a Christian. It's not so remarkable now because I experience it all the time. I was uh, killing time in my lunch hour uh, when I used to work in the newspaper business in Bedford, walking around a shop. And I noticed the shop assistant was wearing a fish lapel badge. So I knew he was a Christian. And I'd only just become a Christian and I asked him how long he'd been a Christian and we chatted and I felt a unity and a bond with him even though we'd never seen each other before and we never have seen each other since. Do you know that experience, Christian? Of course you do. Unity in the Spirit. And unity in the Spirit gives friendships with Christians that are deeper than any other friendship that you had before you were converted. It is remarkable. Now here in this passage it tells us that it's a unity that comes from the Trinity. Look at verses 4 to 6. And as I read them, you'll see there are seven, one, the, the word one. Seven times the word one comes in these verses. Seven being the number of completeness in the Bible, like seven days in a week. Look at the seven ones in verses 4 to 6. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. See, the word one, it's about unity. And it's wonderfully Trinitarian. One Spirit, one Lord, that is Jesus, and one God and Father of all. The unity of the Spirit that we enjoy is a reflection of the unity in the Godhead, or it should be. Father, Son and Holy Spirit completely united in thought and purpose and action. And so you see, for us to be godly, for us to become more like God as a church family or as this passage puts it at the end of verse 13, to attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, for us to be godly and mature and be all that we should be, then we must be united, just as the Holy Trinity is united. Unity with others, then, is something that comes at conversion. As the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us, he unites us with other Christians. And I know that many of you, well, if you're Christian, you'll know that. That's verse 3, the unity of the Spirit. But look what Paul says in verse 3, and it's quite surprising once we realise what this is. He says, make every effort to keep that unity. So yes, that unity is ours. Yes, it's remarkable, but no, it is not guaranteed and it's not unbreakable. We have to make the effort to keep it. Now again, if you've been a Christian more than five minutes, you'll know that. We know that the church is not perfect. There's a few people here um, who studied at Oak Hill Theological College. Great college. College I went to. I still remember when I first went to Oak Hill. Um, Incidentally, one of my friends calls it Vicar Factory. As I went to Oak Hill College, I rather naively thought it would almost be heaven on earth. Christians living together, studying the Bible together. Boy, was I brought down to earth. It was hard work living with those other people. They probably thought it was hard work living with me as well. We're all Christians, we all have the Holy Spirit, but we had to make a huge effort to get on together. Is it still like that at Oak Hill? No, no, they think it's perfect. There we are. Well, it was obviously just me. Now, look, you don't have to go to theological college to know that. It's true in the local church as well. So you arrive at Sheffield as a Christian and you come along to Christchurch Forward to see if this is the church you want to make your, 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 your spiritual home. You meet other real Christians and and experience the unity of the Spirit and so you decide to stay here. 
But you don't have to be here long before you discover that this isn't a perfect place. That like every family, we have our funny little ways. That it's not easy to get on with everyone here. That is true in every church family. It is hard living and working together with other Christians, isn't it? So we have to make an effort. And it does take huge effort to keep this unity. But of course, that doesn't sound very spiritual, does it? Now let me stop here in case you think this isn't very spiritual. I mean, it clearly says it in verse 3, make every effort. Let me stop here and take you back to last week. Last week in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, we saw two magnificent prayers for the power of God to be at work in us. We saw that we we would need all the power of God to make us what we ought to be. We are are only ever going to be able to live lives of unity if God powerfully works in us to change us by his Holy Spirit. But listen, praying that prayer doesn't mean that in some super spiritual way we're going to be overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit of God and miraculously become all that we should be. No. Three verses later, Paul says, make every effort. So do you see, the Christian life is never pray and God will do everything. And the Christian life is never pull your socks up and make a supreme effort and you'll become all that you should be. The authentic Christian life is pray and make the effort. So as you and I rely on the Lord in prayer and as we make the effort, then we see the Holy Spirit in us doing his work. I used to read the Bible regularly with a a student um, a a few years back. We we used to end our time by praying for each other and uh, on one occasion he said, um, I guess this could be the prayer uh, prayer request of almost any student, will you pray for me to get up in the morning obviously found that very difficult I said to him here's the deal you get one leg out of bed in the morning and I'll pray the Holy Spirit would help you to get the other out (laughs) see that's that's, that's real and biblical spirituality chapter 3 verses 14 to 21 pray for the power of God chapter 4 verse 3 make every effort And verse 3 is make every effort to overcome those things which hamper unity because it runs on for verse 2, you see. Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Look at verse 2, it's wonderful. Verse 2, be humble. Make every effort to be humble because humility is the opposite of pride and pride hinders unity. You know this, when I'm proud, when I think highly of myself, I don't treat people properly. When I think people are less important than me, less biblical than me, less spiritual than me, less intellectual than me, less, well, whatever it is, well, then I treat them less well than me. Be humble then. Verse 2, be gentle. Uh, Gentleness or or meekness. Strength under control. Uh, You can look up later if you want to, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, where uh, you'll see that to be gentle means not quarrelling. Don't be out to pick a fight. Be gentle. Even when you're angry, have it under control because gentleness fosters unity. Be humble, be gentle, and verse 2, be patient. Slow to avenge wrong. See, if I'm quick to jump on my high horse, always quick to react, then of course I'll break unity. A good friend of mine in Christian ministry told me that he made a rule never to deal with a situation when he was angry but to always wait 24 hours before he responded to anything contentious. You see, when I heard him say that, I adopted the same rule and it has been wonderfully helpful. Be patient, 
It's remarkable how waiting 24 hours makes a world of difference when you're at odds with someone. And finally in verse 2, bear with one another. See, Paul says of the local church, you'll need a lot of forbearance with them because we're not in heaven yet. Make every effort then to keep the unity of the Spirit by living, verse 2. The unity of the Spirit, secondly, unity in the faith in verses 7 to 16. And again, we get that phrase in verse 13 especially. Now, so far, I doubt any Christian will question that we should live verse 2 or that living verse 2 will bring unity. But this passage tells us that we can't have real unity without both unity of the Spirit and unity in the faith. And note verse 13 is in the faith, that is unity in the body of truth we believe. More clearly perhaps in the next clause in verse 13, unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. You see it's unity in what we believe. And again it's a glorious unity that I don't have any doubt many of you have enjoyed. So you see we experience unity in the spirit when we meet a Christian we've never met before and you feel at one with them. But how much deeper is that unity between Christians in Bible study when we discover together the magnificent depths of the truths we have in common? Do you know that? Without embarrassing, I think of my dear colleague Andrew here. All the way from Australia, when we first met last June to think about whether it was right for him to come uh, in the job here, as Christian brothers we were instantly united. Unity of the Spirit, wonderful. All the way, miles away. You couldn't have been any further away and yet when we come together, united just like that. But that bond and unity, for me, has grown deeper and richer in these past months as we've discovered a unity in the faith. We we, we look at the Bible together and we say, yeah, I believe that too. It's wonderful. He's all the way from Australia. I didn't think Australians knew anything, but it's wonderful. (laughs) Now look, these are critical days for the Church of England. Uh, Wallace Benn, the Bishop of Lewis, gave an excellent lecture here in May, just down there, explaining how the Anglican Church worldwide is being split over the issue of human sexuality. And he explained how he believes that will affect the Church of England. But even before this current crisis, the Anglican Church has struggled with disunity for a long time. Certainly all the time that I've been ordained in the Church of England, senior staff in different dioceses that I've been in have been calling for unity. Desperate for unity they are. But what is so so really desperate about their desperation is that they try to attain unity by asking us to put aside our theological differences. I have actually been discouraged to open the Bible in some meetings with the wider church because it highlights the differences of our belief. Now look, Ephesians 4 tells us there is no unity when there is a lack of interest in Christian doctrine. Until we all reach unity, verse 13, in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Question, how do we find unity in the faith then? Unity in the truth. Well, it comes through the gifts that Jesus has given to the church. Look back to verse 7. Each of us, uh, but to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. Now, verse 8 is a quote from Psalm 68. Uh, it's a psalm of victory. You might like to look it up later. Verse 1 talks about victory. Uh, the psalm speaks of God defeating his enemies. And the verses quoted here speak of a victory parade of the armies of God returning with the spoils of war. Now Paul picks up those verses and says, the ascension of Jesus Christ is a great mark of the victory of God as he returned to the Father victorious after his death and resurrection. 
And as he returned to the Father, so at the end of verse 8, he gave gifts to men. He gave the gifts of the Holy Spirit to his church. Now clearly, those of you who know the Bible will know that Paul doesn't list all the gifts of the Spirit here. And he quite deliberately is selective. Because Paul is telling us how to reach unity in the faith. And how does that come about? Well, look at the gifts listed in verse 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Verse 11, apostles and prophets. Now, if you look back to chapter 2, verse 20, you'll see the gift of the apostles and prophets are the foundational gifts of the church. So for 2,000 years, the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles, the teaching here in the Bible. Here is the foundation. If we get rid of these foundations, the church falls down. Indeed, if people don't want to build on these foundations, if they build on different foundations, whatever they are building, they are not building the church of Jesus Christ. When I worked in London, my, um, my study overlooked the BBC building, which, while I was working there, became a building site as they embarked upon a multi-million pound redevelopment plan. As I watched out of my window, when I really should have been working, I saw not only the, um, the building being knocked down, but, but new foundations laid, because they were not just going to repair the building, they were putting a completely new building up, constructing a completely new building. New foundations. Now, look, if people move from the apostles' teaching, the foundations of the church, here in the Bible, whatever they are building when they lay new foundations is not the church of Jesus Christ. So the apostle prophets lay the foundation for the building and therefore for unity. Then chapter 4 verse 11, there's the gift of the evangelist. They're the ones who take the message of the apostles to those who haven't heard. And finally in verse 11, the gift of the pastor teacher. It is one gift because it's one word in the original there, pastor teacher, not two things. Now do you see how we then reach unity? We reach unity by keeping to the apostles' teaching which comes to us first through evangelists and then through pastors and teachers teaching us the word of God and so building up his church. That's how we reach unity. Indeed, we cannot have real Christian unity when we put our Bibles down. That's why Bible study is so important. Not just to fill our heads with information. It's not just an intellectual exercise. It brings unity, which brings glory to God. If you're, really, if you're really sharp this morning, you'll see I've missed one step out. Now look at verse 12. I'll read from verse 11. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastor teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith. And do you see that step that I missed out? The pastor teacher is to teach so that other people work Very important. It's not the pastor teacher alone who does ministry. The pastor teacher teaches in order to prepare everyone else to do ministry. Ministry at work, ministry at home, ministry at the school gates, ministry with friends, ministry in the local church. That's what Bible teaching should be about. The sermon, the Bible study, is not just about filling our heads with information. It's about equipping us for works of service, verse 12. And then as we serve... Having learned, we grow in unity and become all that we should be. That's what it says at the end of verse 13, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Learning and serving together 
the body of Christ is built up in unity. Now as we close, and we're very near to ending now, let me give you two uh, practical things as to how I think this works out. Uh, Learning and serving firstly makes us strong. You see, in order to strengthen our physical bodies, we must eat and exercise. That's how we grow strong, isn't it? Eating and exercising. And for us, spiritually, eating, feeding on the word of God, and exercising, serving the Lord. If we do one without the other, it does us no good at all. Just learning is not good for us, just eating. It makes us what John Stott describes as tadpole Christians, all head. Now we know this stuff. See, if we, if we know all this but never do anything with it, well, we won't really grow. We need to serve in order to grow. Or to change the picture completely, if we eat all the time and don't serve, it makes us flabby. And do you see how that affects unity? People who just learn, learn, learn and don't serve, well, if they don't serve, they're not putting their hand to the right things, they suddenly have all this time on their hands and they start getting bogged down with all the things that don't matter, tittle-tattling about this, that and the other. When I find people who are really serving the Lord wholeheartedly, they don't have time for tittle-tattle, for disunity. They get on with it. Now, I wouldn't be at all surprised if there aren't some people here who've been learning in this church for years but have never got on with serving. Friends, you need to do both to become strong and mature. And the whole church needs both in order for us to become united. That's verses 11 to 13. Learning and serving makes us strong. Secondly, learning and serving keeps us faithful. You see, if the one temptation is for people just to be learning all the time, the other is for good folks who just want to serve the Lord. I don't need Bible study, just let me go and serve him. People who serve but do not learn, what happens then? I'll be taken in by every new fad in the church. That's verse 14. Tossed back and forth by every wind of doctrine. Now do you see, if that's you, then that won't bring unity either. It's great that you want to serve the Lord. Terrific. But every new thing that comes along, you go after that. And that causes disunity. But that won't happen when we learn and serve together. Then we become mature. See verse 14, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. And there we are, full full circle, growing up into the head Jesus. That's where we started. Unity, bringing everything under the one head the Lord Jesus. It comes about through learning and serving. Through the unity of the Spirit and the unity in the truth, in the Word. One day everything will be brought under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10. That is going to happen. That is God's eternal plan. Meanwhile, our job as the church is to begin to show and demonstrate to the world and indeed to the heavenly realms as they look on that that unity is going to happen because as the church we are God's people already under the lordship of Jesus and therefore we should be making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit and striving for unity in the faith. Let's pray together.